All right, I'm going to build up like that. I'll uh, try and do justice to the passage. And um, Thank you for coming along, everyone. Um, we're going through chapters 12 and 13 in the book of Revelation today. Um, nice, nice light stuff, mentioning just things like the beast and the dragon and all that good fluffy thing. So, um, Incidentally, speaking of the end of the world, um, I got to be here during the hailstorm yesterday, which is fantastic because it's an awful lot of roof to be pounded by golf ball-sized ball hail. And people pulling in off the roads and taking shelter under the cover everywhere around the church. And it took all my willpower not to go outside and tut and go, you know, I'm sure you would have driven past this place so many times, but a little bit of hail, <laughs> you come flocking straight to the church. No, I didn't do that. No. Um, but these are two of the very, uh, two of the most dense and intense passages uh, in Revelation. There's a lot there. Um, we're going to go through them. I'm going to try and be very faithful to the passage. Um, if I miss something that you pick up, I'd love to talk to you after it. If I go briefly over something you want to talk about in depth, I'd love to talk about that after the service as well. Um, so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read our reading, and then we'll get into it. Father God, we thank you that you've given us your scriptures, your word to reveal your will in this world, Lord. And We ask that you open up our hearts to receive your word and open up your word for our hearts. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. So we're working with all of chapters 12 and 13 today, but the little reading we're going to start with here is verses 7 through 12 of chapter 12. And they go like this. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Revelations 12 and 13 contain some of the most iconic imagery in the book of Revelation, perhaps in the Bible. It's only serious competition for most memorable image might be the horseman from Revelation 6. But the devil gets more screen time in our generation. He's an endless source of fascinations to artists and screenwriters who have even a little bit of interest in spiritual matters, even though they usually employ him with a certain amount of artistic license. Remember, we're living in a world in which the word sinful is primarily associated with good chocolate. So we can't be surprised if our understanding of the father of sin has likewise drifted somewhat. My hope from today's message is to give a kind of a portrait of the devil from these passages, because he's the main subject of them. And I've become something of a connoisseur of the way that our pop culture depicts the devil when it brings him out. Because he's depicted over and over again in a variety of different ways, rarely in an effort to do justice to the biblical picture of him. The internet movie database lists 1,100 movies 
featuring the devil as a character in there somewhere. And remember, Hollywood's only been doing this for about 100 years. It's a fair bit of screen time devoted to one guy. Now, because I'm a product of my generation, I have something of a soft spot for goofy, apocalyptic Hollywood stuff, like End of Days, in which Arnold Schwarzenegger encounters the first movie villain that he cannot shoot or stab to death, and defeats the devil by bravely sacrificing himself in a vaguely Christ-like way. Keanu Reeves, similarly, confronts the devil twice in Devil's Advocate and Constantine, and both times thwarts the devil's plans by sacrificing himself in a vaguely Christ-like way. So something of the understanding of the devil as this opponent we cannot just defeat but need some kind of sacrifice to overcome remains there in our public understanding. Even those who have fallen in love with the revived Doctor Who franchise have seen the Doctor clash with the enemy of mankind. Now while we are firmly on God's team and not in the business of trying to improve the devil's public image, we live in this culture. And a little bit of engagement with the culture around us shows us that people overwhelmingly don't believe the devil is real, but they have an idea of what he would be like if he did exist. He tends to be thwarted by clever tricks and human virtue. He's charismatic and darkly humorous. He's not, a good at, at, not as good at playing the fiddle as he thinks he is. And while I think it's certainly not sinful inherently to see a movie or hear a song that mentions the devil incorrectly like this, it's worth our while to remember who our enemy really is. John's vision in chapter 12 begins with a sign appearing in the heavens. And then a kind of a dramatic retelling of heavenly events, things that we were not able to see before but are now been made clear to us in Revelation. Satan, a leader of angels, rebels against God, is flung down to earth and spitefully wages war on mankind. This is a war that began long before us. Unless Christ comes back very soon, it will go on long after us. But the followers of the Son of God have no excuse not to understand who we are facing. So let's go back a step and read the first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 6. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and his, to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now the first thing we see is this celestial woman wrapped in all the glory of heaven's creation. It's hard to imagine what some of these things might precisely have looked like. What does it mean to be clothed in the sun? Has she flattened it out and wrapped it around herself like a shawl? Or is she standing behind it as a sort of a radiant fence? But we should be careful not to over-literalize this here. This is imagery. It is a word picture. It's meant to tell us something about who this woman is meant to be. She's clothed in the brightest, most glorious, untouchable parts of God's creation. She has the moon for moccasins, the sun for a sarong, and stars for a scrunchie. She is the most precious thing in all of creation. 
And she's about to give birth to the son who will rule over the nations with an iron scepter. Now the child is Jesus. That much can be understood very easily. Is the woman meant to be Mary then? It's possible. She's the mother of our Savior and in a way the most important person in the universe who isn't also God, maybe. But again, that seems to be taking the vision too literally as if this woman was exactly meant to be just one individual. This is a cosmic sign of a woman treasured by God and best fits a representation of God's people as a whole. The daughter of Zion, as spoken of in the Old Testament. The people of God as the bride of God, through whom the Son of God comes into the world. This may once have referred only to the faithful Jewish remnant, but comes to mean his church. In 1 Peter 2.10 We're told that once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And so the woman here, this prized jewel of all of creation, this symbolic stand-in for God's people, is loomed over by a terrible dragon ready to devour her child as soon as he is born into the world. It reminds the reader of the terrible fate suffered by so many infants throughout Israel's history recorded in the scriptures. The massacre of the Jewish children under Herod when Christ was born. Before that, the dashing of children against stones when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. Before that, Pharaoh killing a generation of Israelite children from only which Moses was spared. And before that, this line from Genesis 3, verse 14 to 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Here in John's vision, we see that kind of enmity, that bitterness between mankind and the offspring of the serpent. What was said in Genesis is reiterated here in a pictorial way because it's talking about the same event, the same true conflict between the devil and God's people being culminated in the coming of Christ. Now this highlights the first of three points I need to draw out about the devil in these passages. Three points that conveniently all begin with the letter D. And the first is that the devil is determined. The devil is determined. He is a determined enemy. He is not discouraged by defeat. He is determined to strike out at mankind because he hates God and God loves us. And it's after this defeat here that we arrive at the passage we read earlier. And the devil's response is telling of his character. He twists, he, he twists, he twists, he rages, and he is so determined to have his victory that he takes up arms against the all-powerful God of heaven. He makes war on the throne of God. Now, there is some timing complexity here. When is this supposed to have happened? When did Satan fall? Not to hell, but to earth, apparently. Now, people can differ on how they date this time-wise. and I think it's one of these things upon which brothers and sisters in Christ can differ without anyone being at fault. Some say that Satan and his war in heaven happened before the creation of the earth and the temptation in the garden Sorry, the temptation in the desert was just the next chapter of the devil's attack culminating on Jesus. And the temptation in the garden, the first part of his plan to attack mankind. But some see this sign of the woman steering against that, saying this conflict 
between her and the dragon suggests that the war is perhaps started at creation with the birth of mankind. Perhaps that was the spark that began Satan's rebellion against the throne of God. But I personally take this timeline as given to us in Revelation 12 as quite instructive. I think that Satan and his angels had broken from God's rule at some point in the ancient past, but by some strange grace of God was still tolerated there in heaven. The book of Job features God speaking to Satan directly when he comes to heaven to assemble with the angels. And if we take this to be a true account, then we must expect the devil had some right to come and go in heaven for a while. But here, after the child of woman is born, after Christ is born, and the efforts of Herod to find and kill him fail, Satan gets his final eviction notice. The war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. They lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who, was led, who leads the whole world astray. Have you ever wondered why there is so little activity of Satan and his devils in the Old Testament compared to the New? But by the time Jesus turns up, the place is swarming with them. Jesus can't go anywhere without encountering demons. Christ runs at them and casts them out everywhere he goes. When he does, they freak out, terrified in recognition. I think they've fairly recently been locked out of heaven, and this is a novel experience for them. In Luke 10, 18, Jesus' followers excitedly, excitedly tell him how the demons obey them at the sound of his name. And Jesus' response is to tell them that he saw Satan fall like lightning. And I think he means it in that way, that while incarnated, perhaps as a child, being the God who witnesses all things, he saw him fall starkly and suddenly from heaven to earth like lightning. Now, like I said, the timing on this is negotiable, but the heart of the passage is the fall of Satan. That he can no longer make war on God's kingdom in heaven. But God's heavenly kingdom is not only in heaven. When Christ came to earth, he was baptized, he was tempted by the devil himself. And then Christ began to say, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. So the devil has an earthly target for his rage. The kingdom of heaven on earth. As in verse 17 at the end of chapter 12. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to the testimony about Jesus. The devil is a determined enemy. His hate is frustrated and savage and deeply, deeply personal. And if we have any illusion that each or any of us will skate through our lives without ever being directly opposed by him, we may be mistaken. Now the limits and rules and expectations we should have for that kind of spiritual warfare are sermon in themselves when we don't have time to fit inside this one right now. But the short encouragement that comes out of this is to remember that he can and will oppose us, but we needn't go so far as to say the devil drives all of our sins. But for those that do, we've been given authority to deflect him. We've been given authority to turn back the determination of the devil. Right after Jesus says he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, he tells his followers that he has given them authority to walk over snakes and over scorpions and not to be hurt. 
Now, what does he mean by that? Now, have you heard of the snake-handling churches in America's Deep South? Yes, occasionally. There's a handful of churches in Kentucky and Tennessee and other places where the pastor and sometimes the congregation will handle these venomous snakes, invoking this verse with assurance they won't get hurt. And every now and then there's another news stories about a Pentecostal preacher dying from a rattlesnake bite because of this practice. I love America and I love Americans, but the reason this happens is because those snake handlers are idiots and they don't understand that this is imagery. We have been given authority over the forces of Satan, the serpent and his offspring, the fallen angels. That is the authority we are given and we should not neglect to use it when we pray. When we bow our heads to pray for the success of a ministry event or a great decision that we have to make, we have a God-given right to ask that the agents of the enemy be bound, that they do not interrupt the work of God, they would not interfere with the work of God's people. He's a determined enemy, and we must be determined to resist his attacks. Chapter 13 is where the war in heaven ends and the war on earth begins. It's a depiction of the enemy's response to being cast out of heaven forever and seeing his power thwarted in the world by Christ on the cross. Previously, he led the whole world astray. Now, knowing his time is short, he moves to crush everything that he cannot lead. In true satanic fashion, he does so in a parody of God himself, establishing an unholy trinity of monsters and aping the creator every step of the way that he can. Chapter 13 begins like this. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast come out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads and ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. And the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with the wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? In John's vision, the dragon summons up his own monstrous messiah out of the sea. A place the ancient cultures, incidentally, always viewed as a strange alien location full of dark things. And that imagery is being invoked. Notice that the beast has seven heads and ten horns, very much in the image of his dragon father. But the ten crowns instead of seven, even more powerful, even more desperate to rule. Now, much of this symbolism of what these beasts mean, precisely what the heads mean, will leave till chapter 17, where an angel helpfully informs John on precisely those meanings. But for anyone who has read through the book of Daniel, can't help but realize the connections between Daniel, who had a vision of four beasts, and this vision of the beast here in Revelation. Daniel's four beasts are a lion, a bear, a leopard, and then a fourth beast he seems to struggle to describe. It has ten horns, but he can't get much more out of it than that. Here, the fourth and final beast with his ten horns appears, representing some final wicked kingdom with threat and power equal to all of those behind it put together. To John and his contemporaries, they must certainly have thought this to mean the Roman Empire with its ongoing wild persecution of Christians. To us, long after Rome's falling, it must surely mean more than just that ancient city. Rather, the constant stream of governments and historical forces devoted to attacking, corrupting, and devouring 
the people of God. History is littered with tyrants and secular authorities that are desperate, desperate as the devil is desperate, to persecute believers. Roman emperors like Nero who threw Christians to the lions for public entertainment or locked them up in cages and set them on fire, human candles for grisly pagan ambience. A hatred that continued in various kinds until that empire finally became Christian, at least nominally, under Constantine hundreds of years later. But that was hardly the last of it. The cradle of Christianity is now the Muslim world and it didn't cease to be Christian bloodlessly. Sharia law, when it was imposed on the, by the Muslim occupiers there, did not kill all the Christian subjects, but did remove bells from all steeples so there was no competition for the call to Allah's prayer. It forced constant humiliation upon Christians, and for that matter Jews, living in those Muslim domains, imposed special taxes, and while the man paying the taxes was counting out the coins, he was often required by law to be seized by the beard and slapped in the face over and over again. Very deliberate, very open intention to make living in service to God humiliating and painful for anyone but the most devoted believer to endure. And of course, any suffering inflicted by the ancient world we brought near to perfection in the 20th century. In Europe, millions of majority Christian Germans were persuaded to take up the cause of a neo-pagan tyrant called Hitler and his fascination with the old Norse ways, with Odin's vicious strength instead of Christ's gentler virtues. And it's to Christianity's everlasting shame that we were on both sides of that war. A handful of Christian denominations, some Baptists among them, were defiant enough to be thrown into the category of Bible students, which was mostly the Nazis' label for Jehovah's Witnesses, who they threw in the camps as well. But most Protestants, most Catholics, most who confessed Christ ignored their obligation at that time in Germany. Now closer to home, our fathers and grandfathers went out to fight against the empire of Japan itself, draped in the ancient legacy of martial pride and racial strength. Japan that had, up until that point in that war, been known in combat for how kindly it treated its prisoners of war, how good it was with the people that it captured, but it was twisted and turned into a cruel instrument to use on those Australians captured in war against them to say nothing of the millions of Chinese lives lost in that repressive and violent time. The devil is desperate and he will use everything he can. And if we fail to see a satanic hand behind these conflicts and the devastation that bloomed out of them beginning in Europe, which had been the medieval heart of Christianity, if we fail to see any satanic influence there, we might be giving him a little too little credit. He is desperate to do any damage he can to the kingdom of God and to the world of man. And not just with the subtle temptations that he leveraged against Eve. Verse 5, ooh, sorry, verse 7 and on. It, let's say the beast, was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Do you see the devil who once just accused humanity and led astray and meddled and toyed and plotted against heaven knows he has lost at this point. Once Christ has come and died on the cross, his accusations became worthless. 
In the book of Job, Satan finds the one righteous man, the one man he thinks may be without sin and dares God that no one could be that good. No one can be free from sin. And if he's if he'll just let the devil loose to attack Job, then Job will surely soon change his tune. Now the devil looks around our world and there's not just one man free from sin, there's billions of the critters. Men, women, children, colors, and tribes of all kinds set free from the guilt of sin by the blood of the Lamb. And now, like he attacked Job, Satan is desperately waging war against God's people everywhere. And God's response is, that he will give them strength that they can endure it. They can take it. The Lord will not permit his plan to be thwarted. Remember, we have that authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. But the example Christ gave us is victory through weakness, obedience in suffering, so that the devil can exhaust all of his desperation on the people of God and still come up short. Friends, we live in a very safe and prosperous place in the world. But the world at large is not terribly friendly to Christians. We spend, or I know that I spend, a lot of time thinking to myself about how Christianity in Europe and America and Australia has paled and become weaker. That sort of self-pitying thing that some Christians do sometimes. But our brothers and sisters in Asia and Africa number in at least one and a half billion. If the worst indignity forced upon us here is that we get the stink eye directed at us when we refuse to go to a gay wedding, we do well to gain some perspective. There are more than a billion Christians in Africa and Asia who suffer much more violent and dangerous persecutions than we do. And they are our brothers and sisters and deserve our prayer and support. Open Doors is an international ministry that helps our brothers and sisters in the persecuted world. If a Western Christian ever begins to feel they are persecuted, that Open Doors helps to gain us some perspective. Now the devil is determined and he is desperate. Chapter 13 goes on to describe the second beast, this one bursting out of the earth, performing great signs, deceiving the people, forcing them to worship the image of the beast or to be killed. And now there's this undeniable allusion to the Trinity here. And there's so much stuff here, and I hope that you take time in your life groups to explore it more deeply than I have the opportunity to here. But we read in verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. It had performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all that refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all the people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for that number is of a man. 
That number is 666. Thus, we have the dragon, the devil, who makes war on heaven and seeks after the throne of God. He gives his authority to the beast, appearing seven-headed and ten-horned in the likeness of his father, who apparently suffered a fatal wound but recovered a parody of the resurrection of Christ. And the second beast is a satanic parody of the role of the spirit, performing these signs, establishing the worship of the beast, directing worship to the beast. Back in chapter 7, God's faithful was sealed with God's seal on their foreheads. And here the beast does the same. The implication is clear. You only have one forehead. You can only have one seal. You are sealed into the kingdom of God in the book of life or by default. Great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, marked with the followers of the beast. There is no middle ground. The devil owns the fence, and those sitting on it, he owns too. As for the number 666, I'm a person of insight, and so I've calculated its meaning. I'm just not telling you. Get your own insight. No, but the truth is, no one really knows precisely what this number means. John is clear that it refers to a man, but whichever peers who knew what he meant by that, who knew what cipher he was using, to what he was referring, they are long gone. Those with this insight are no longer with us, and we can take that to mean it is not so important that we know precisely what the 666 means. What we do know is that the devil's plan, executed in the world, culminates in constant repressive attacks on God's people, and our responsibility is to endure. As it says in verse 10, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword, they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. And the amount of effort that people go to to try and guess 2,000 years after the fact what John was taking efforts to hide in that number, instead of revealing like almost everything else in the book, is astonishing. But we've been given our response to this. We are to preach the word of God to the lost and endure whatever punishment, whatever suffering comes our way. We are to endure the last desperate stops pulled out by the devil, secure in the knowledge that he is, third point, determined, desperate, and doomed. He is determined, desperate, and doomed. I don't want to spoil the ending of the book for you, but he loses. Sorry. This has never been a fair fight. It is the cosmic world scale unfolding, a lot like the story of Job. The devil wildly attempts to tear down and discredit God's people by heaping suffering on them and giving them faith to endure it. God wins out through. The devil fails. The dragon, his beasts depicted here, show the final age-spanning efforts of a foiled and doomed villain. The only weapon he really ever had was accusation. To point out how humans, like the devil himself, fell short of God's glory. They could not approach that standard. That means that God could not accept them. There was no basis to punish some and spare others. Creation had to be a failure. The Lord would either have to burn the whole thing and admit defeat 
or else lower his standards to accept a less holy world. In either case, the devil wins. But Christ took the sins of the faithful when he died on the cross at Calvary and the Son of God ripped a hole in that satanic narrative. Creation was not a failure. It was always, always from the foundation meant to be this crucible of faith where sinners would suffer but receive and show faith for Jesus to pay the cost that is otherwise unpayable. And when that cost was paid, believers got the promise of eternal life with God. Delivered both from the righteous wrath of the maker against their sin and the childish rage of the adversary. So the devil is determined to attack God and he is desperate in his efforts. But he is doomed to fail. We live in the world where the devil thrashes out his final tantrum. And whatever suffering and persecution we or our brothers and sisters may face, the enemy has been defeated. As the voice in heaven cries out in verse 10 of chapter 12, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. We can in this world without expecting to save it. After all, this world is coming to an end. We wait a new heavens and a new earth, and we bide out the meantime in faith and endurance. The purpose of these verses, which are frightful and heavy with dark promises of things to come, is not to terrify us or give us a secret code that details, details specific events and how we should react to them. It's to put events in perspective. The devil and his plans are doomed. No matter how desperate and determined he may be. That requires endurance and faithfulness on our part to get through we pray against that enemy. We pray for relief for our brothers and sisters who do suffer persecution. And we live each day knowing that this life of faith is not lived for its own sake, but for the day when we will come into God's presence, where true everlasting life awaits us, even though we have done nothing to deserve it. But we've received freely from Jesus that grace that saves us. Thank God for the work that he has done in his son to deliver us from sin and from the enemy. Let's pray. Father God, your son came for us. He poured out his blood and gave us victory over the enemy. And we thank you for that amazing grace. Now we ask for your help for the rest of our lives where the devil is determined to disrupt or destroy us we ask you to bind him and his agents so that we can freely serve you. Where his desperate attacks cause us suffering, please help us to endure faithfully so not to love our lives so much as to shrink from death. And Father, keep in our hearts always the sacred truth that the victory is already won. The enemy is doomed. We, your children, are saved. Whatever comes next, we know we'll be drawn up to your presence. To your Son, all blessing and glory and honor and power. And we ask this in his name. Amen.
Thanks, Brendan. I invite you to stand as we conclude our service this morning. So deep. 